I've heard everyone say it to me. I've passed by that a thousand times in my life. <laughs> yeah, thousands of people pass by yeah. here, and, and uh, it's literally in their backyard, and they don't know it. Welcome to the Land Before Podcast, where we dig into fossil histories and paleo mysteries. I'm your host, Erin LeCount, Education Programs Director at Dinosaur Ridge in Morrison, Colorado. Today, we're heading into the Ice Age to an ancient spring not too far away. Here, mammoths and other extinct animals lived and died, leaving behind giant bones buried in layers of clay. Paleontologists unearthed, reburied, unearthed again, reburied again, unearthed a third time, and reburied a third time, leaving them untouched for more than 20 years now. Sometimes the best place to keep old bones is right where you found them. We'll explore the place called Lamb Spring and hear more about what lies six feet under. But first, did you know that there was a time when crocodiles lived in Colorado? You have to go back almost 100 million years to the Cretaceous, when the place we now call Colorado was flat and closer to the equator. Today, there's a section on Dinosaur Ridge where sandstone layers mark the spot of an ancient river channel. This freshwater stream fed into the Western Interior Seaway long before the Rocky Mountains formed. Dinosaur Ridge was once a coastline, tidal flats and beaches, instead of the iconic Rocky Mountains and vast plains. Where those plains now stretch out across Kansas, a hundred million years ago was all underwater. We know this because of the Benton Shale on Dinosaur Ridge, flat, platy rock that looks like big flakes of dried, cracked mud. Wherever you find shale, you know you're looking at what used to be the floor of an ocean or a lake. Fossilized shark's teeth, ammonoids, and other marine fossils have been found in the Benton layers. This is all evidence of the marine nature of this area. Continuing up Dinosaur Ridge, the shale is covered by layers of the South Platte Formation sandstone. This is the top of the Dakota group and remnants of the ancient beaches. Cutting through the tidal flats were freshwater creeks, indicated by the angled edge of the layers present at a spot that we call Crocodile Creek. It's all bone dry now, with some shrubs poking through the cracks in the rock. In the springtime, colorful wildflowers bloom, attracting insects and songbirds. We call this part of Dinosaur Ridge Crocodile Creek because when you look closely at the rocks on the edges of this channel, you start to notice trios of parallel lines. It's like someone took one of those three-pronged garden tools and etched tally marks into the stone, each about four inches long. When it was still wet, something scratched into the soft ground, pushing its body forward with clawed toe tips, leaving tracks. We call it Croc Creek because we know that it wasn't alligators making the scratch and swim tracks. Gators wouldn't come along for another 20 million years, according to the fossil record. Ancestral crocodiles came first, and their descendants are still around today, of course, just not here in Colorado. Here in the late Cretaceous, crocodilians with their longer V-shaped snouts and always visible upper and lower teeth hung out in the watery places waiting for the chance to catch their prey. They lived in habitats that enabled some to survive and evolve into today's crocs. This was despite the fact that all non-avian dinosaurs and many plants and animals died off in the aftermath of a massive meteorite impact 66 million years ago. Today, 24 species of crocodilians live around the world in warm, wet places. All of them are facing some form of threat to their continued survival, either from habitat loss, pollution, poachers. In other words, human activity is the threat. 
Colorado is no longer home to wild crocodilians. But there is a place in Denver working to repopulate native habitats where crocs are in danger of disappearing. Places like the Orinoco River Basin in Venezuela and Colombia. Brian Ocone is the Senior Vice President for Life Sciences at the Denver Zoo, where he's also the resident reptile advocate. Brian told us about the work that the zoo is doing with young Orinoco crocodiles. It's a critically endangered species, and so there's a breeding program for them, and there is a release plan to breed some uh, of these uh, these individuals and then bring them back to Venezuela and release them back into the wild. Um, these were born, the ones we have here, uh, that, we, that just arrived at Denver Zoo a couple months ago, um, were born at the uh, Dallas World Aquarium. Uh, but these animals need to be raised up to a certain size so that they don't become prey uh, for everything. So baby crocodilians, it's a high likelihood they're going to die when they hatch after they hatch because everything can eat them. So they have to get to a point where not everything can eat them. And so, uh, but the aquarium doesn't have the facilities to raise them all to that size. So a group of us, uh, zoos, including Denver Zoo, uh, have brought them in. We have a very strict regimen so that we're all doing the same feedings and such so that in a couple years, they should all be about a meter in length. And then they'll be brought back to a central zoo and then they'll be uh, shipped down to Venezuela We'll do a soft release so that they can get used to hunting on their own and that, you know, we can keep an eye on them and make sure that they're adapting back to the wild and then they'll be released back into the wild. And it's, um, uh, so they exist in Venezuela and Colombia in the um, Orinoco River Basin uh, that is there. So I don't know the exact site that they've determined yet. Uh, they may not even determine the site yet, um, but we're just happy to participate and, uh, and help repatriate them back into the wild. So crocodilians in the late Cretaceous, around 100 million years ago, uh, would be pretty recognizable to you and me as crocodiles. Yep. We wouldn't look at it and think, what animal is that? I'm so confused. Yep. Uh, only, of course, we're, back then, certain genera were a lot larger. We have you know, Sarcosuchus at 40 to 45 feet, Dinosuchus at 40 to 42 feet. So why do you think today's crocs, uh, crocodilians, are smaller in size? Well, my, my estimate is that as... As things change and their prey base changed in size, and a lot of the larger animals went extinct, um, they had to adjust down simply because if your food base is, if you're huge and your food base is a lot of tiny little things that you have to go hunt and pick them off one at a time, you're going to have a really hard time getting enough food. And so they've, they probably evolved over time because, you know, as you look back, as you know for sure, a lot of, you know, we had giant land sloths that were, you know, that are just massively bigger than our current sloths. And, and so um, they don't, as, as things evolved and got smaller, they had to probably evolve and get smaller because they probably just couldn't feed themselves, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> that, makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We see that with a lot of prey, uh, predator animals. Yep. Today's largest crocodilians are about half the size of the largest from the Cretaceous. But they are still as resilient as ever, with some species living up to 100 years if they make it to full size. They remain apex predators, feeding off of fish, turtles, and mammals that come too close to the water's edge. The babies at the Denver Zoo feast on crickets. They're around a foot long from tail tip to snout and growing quickly. And baby crocs make the cutest sounds. Do you have any insights as to why crocodilians survived when the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct? Well, it's, it's likely because they're, you know, and this is my guess. I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert in that space, but they're, they're highly adaptive. They're, you know, there, there's very little that can hurt them in the sense of disease. Um, they can survive in places where you're like, wow, there's a lot of stuff in this water and they're just hanging out doing fine. They have really strong immune systems. So, 
you know, not everything died, you know, at, at that point in time. And they were probably just adapted enough and resistant enough to so many things like, you know, a lot of things, a lot more things that lived in the water survived than did on land. Um, so they spent most of their time in the water. So they had that advantage. But a lot of stuff did die. But they're able to survive a lot of things. So even toxins that may have come into the water, they can, you know, they can survive a wide range of temperatures because they're cold blooded. So there's a whole lot of things that probably help them. Um, that's just part of their natural history and their physiology that, um, that allowed them to make it through. And now it's up to humans to help them keep making it through with programs like this one at the Denver Zoo. My name is Jim Watson, and I volunteer as a docent at the exhibit hall at Dinosaur Ridge. Being surrounded by models and pictures as well as fossils of dinosaurs, I often try to imagine what sounds certain creatures made during prehistoric times. When thinking about the Cretaceous period, I'm so curious what the crocodilians may have sounded like, since some of these looked a little bit like living crocodiles, but of wide varying shapes, sizes, and snout configurations, I imagine them to sound similar. They made many sounds being a very social creature. Maybe something like this. Boy, I can only imagine how much possibly louder the very large 30 to 40 foot and several ton Dinosuchus would have sounded like. There's a place about 20 miles southeast of Dinosaur Ridge which could teach us more about the animals that lived in this part of Colorado at the end of the Pleistocene, what we colloquially refer to as the Ice Age. The site contains the largest number of Colombian mammoths found in Colorado, about 30, and these bones that are thousands of years old have not fossilized because of the way they were preserved. It's a place that still needs a lot more study to unravel all of its paleo mysteries. It's the site of an old spring, now dried up and looking like an ordinary prairie, soon to be surrounded by an upscale housing development. Our guest services manager at Dinosaur Ridge, Michelle Howell, wanted to learn more about the megafauna uncovered at this place called Lamb Spring, and find out what still lies buried in the earth below. She met up with Cameron Randolph, a board member of the nonprofit that oversees Lamb Spring, to take a tour of this ancient spring-fed watering hole within earshot of the Santa Fe Railroad line that runs along the Front Range. The story of Lamb Spring goes back millennia in human history, but it was in 1960 when a rancher named Charles Lamb was digging around the natural spring, trying to enlarge it into a stock pond for his cattle when he spotted what looked like a tusk and several bone fragments just below the water's edge. To his credit, he reached out to the United States Geological Survey. They came out and went, yep, that's a mammoth bone. Not a woolly mammoth like you might be picturing. This bone is from a much larger Colombian mammoth, also from the Ice Age, but less woolly. And so they immediately reached out to the Smithsonian Institute, one of the big kind of leading forces at that time uh, with a lot of the work going on around the country. And uh, they came out and from 1961 to 1962, they did a pretty extensive excavation. A guy by the name of Waldo Weddell and um, Glenn Scott uh, headed that up. Weddell was with uh, the Smithsonian, and uh, Glenn Scott was with um, the United States Geological Survey. 
Dr. Weddle was famous for his work with Plains Archaeology and was curator of archaeology at the Smithsonian. So it was a big deal when he came to Colorado. At the USGS, Dr. Scott is known for his maps of the greater Denver area and for the dinosaur fossil discoveries he made in Colorado, including mosasaur bones. These two scientists were at the top of their fields when they began digging into Lamb Springs. Uh, they removed a lot of stuff. They crated it, took it back to uh, Washington, D.C., and it still remains at the Smithsonian to this day. Weddell and Scott excavated eight geological levels, or stratigraphic units, that have been interpreted to represent different historical events at the Lamb Springs site. The lowest stratigraphic level, Unit 1, is about five to six feet below the surface. This is where they found several flint chips suggesting that people were hunting here during the Pleistocene, before the end of the Ice Age, as long as 13,000 years ago. That's much earlier than was thought people were living around here. A more recent dig at the next higher level of ground known as Unit 2 uncovered the skeletal remains of bison, eight projectile points, a knife, a scraper, a flake cutting tool, and several stones. These finds were made back in the early 60s. Then 20 years later, in 1980, a second excavation uncovered more mammoth bones, and at least three bones showing evidence that flakes had been removed. Although because no tools were found to confirm human activity, Scientists couldn't say for sure that the mammoths had been killed and butchered, rather than dying of natural causes. Uh, we have camel, we have, um, we have a, evidence of a giant sloth, uh, we have evidence of um, horse and llama. And so there's all kinds of large creatures that would have been roaming around this body of water. Today, prairie dog mounds dot the landscape and an earth-colored shed stands next to the land where the excavations were done. Many bones were reburied here to keep them naturally preserved for future studies. These are not fossilized. They are encased in an anaerobic uh, environment where they're just buried in clay and oxygen can't get to them. But most people, when they come out, I think they kind of expect to see uh, an exposed bed of bones. And we don't have that. We have some specimens on display for people to see. Uh, so when you get to the site, uh, you get to see a few things, but uh, the earth itself is not uncovered right now. Everything's buried back up. A Colombian mammoth skull that had been exposed, photographed, and reburied back in the 80s was dug up again in 2002 and taken to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science for professional preservation. They made a cast of the skull that now sits inside the shed at Lamb Spring. One of these keys. And it opens on all four sides, and we have pen, we have uh, museum quality uh, signage all the way around, um, and it uh, talks a little bit about the excavation of the skull and uh, uh, making the cast, and uh, you can see some of the pictures right there of that being removed. Uh, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Uh, Kind of a neat little video on it. It's actually on our uh, Facebook page. Now this is an interesting skull because we know that people were at the Lamb Springs site about 9,000 years ago and they were hunting buffalo bison at, in, in that area. This particular skull is 13,000 years old and has never been associated with artifacts that were made by human. But there is speculation that there could be 
human artifacts dating back that 13,000 years, which would be, be during the Clovis time period and some of the some of the earliest remains that we have in Colorado. We have over uh, over 30 identified Colombian mammoth in the ground. Uh, like I said, some of the some of this some of the bones, some of the skulls have been taken out. Um, and uh, the other ones have been buried. Uh, they, they're still down there. So can people just come and hike here like they do at Dinosaur Ridge, or do they have to go on a tour? Well, yes. Uh, they can't just come onto the property. It's obviously gated. It's private. But, uh, yeah, we have a number of tours throughout the year. We, we kick off the tour season in uh, the middle of May. This is 35 acres of protected land, and so all the development, all the road work going on here cannot touch this land. If you would like to visit the Lamb Spring Archaeological Preserve, you can go to the website lambspring.org to schedule a tour between May and October. The nonprofit hopes to one day build and operate an on-site museum and interpretive center modeled after the Mammoth site in Hot Springs, South Dakota. That's where visitors can tour an active dig and see Ice Age fossils found during construction of a housing development there in the 1970s. The Archaeological Conservancy bought Lamb Spring back in 1995. That organization is based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and now owns more than 500 sites of this type across the country. Its mission is to protect archaeological finds from development. You can find links to more information about Lamb Spring in our show notes at dinoridge.org. Okay, it's time for our pop quiz, or a croc quiz, if you will. First question. How can you tell the difference between a crocodile and an alligator? Second question. Which came first, crocodiles or alligators? Third question. Which was bigger, the Colombian mammoth or the woolly mammoth? Here's our answers. Question one. Crocodiles have V-shaped snouts, and you can see upper and lower teeth, giving it a snaggletooth's grin. Question two. Crocodiles came first, with alligators evolving in the end of the Cretaceous around 80 million years ago. Question three. The Colombian mammoth is larger. It stood around 15 feet tall at the shoulder and could have weighed up to 22,000 pounds. It also wasn't woolly. Thanks for listening to the Land Before podcast. Join us next week for more fossil histories and paleo mysteries. Jeff LaMontagne is our supervising producer. Kristen Kidd is executive producer. Aaron LeCount is our host. Michelle Howell and Alice Olson are regular contributors. Our theme song is by Hans Dale Sue. And I'm Katie Bradley, sound editor and sound engineer for the Land Before podcast, Fossil Histories and Paleo Mysteries, produced at Dinosaur Ridge in Morrison, Colorado. Come and visit us. <laughs>